Hello and welcome to this edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm James Morris, Associate Editor at The Journal. And this month it's with particular pleasure that I welcome colleague, friend, rising research star Dr Ben Mullish to discuss a topic that I know is very close to his heart, the gut microbiome. Ben has recently completed his PhD investigating bile acid metabolism of the gut microbiome during faecal transplantation for severe C. diff infection and is heavily involved in the faecal transplantation service here at Imperial College London, as well as ongoing research in the field as a clinical lecturer. Ben, welcome to the Frontline podcast today. Thanks, James. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Now, Ben, I've asked you to come on today to discuss your recent paper that you've written with Professor Iqbal in Birmingham entitled The Gut Microbiome, What Every Gastroenterologist Needs to Know, which was a very helpful overview for people like me who know it's a rapidly developing and important field, but somehow struggle to get our heads around some of the complexity of the research. So can we begin with some foundational definitions, if you don't mind? What is the gut microbiome and is this synonymous with gut microbiota? Uh, Well, thanks, James. I think we're kicking off with a key question from the start, and I think something that confuses people greatly. Uh, There's a huge amount of uh, terminology in this this field. The term gut microbiome and gut microbiota, as you you allude to, are sort of used interchangeably, but they have quite uh, distinct definitions. The, The gut microbiome refers to the entire ecological habitat that is found within the, uh, uh, the microbial uh, life of our, uh, our gut, including all the uh, microorganisms themselves, but also the habitat in which they live. So the metabolites in which they live, the, the pH, they're all different aspects of the, uh, of the entire habitat. In contrast to that, the term gut microbiota is more specifically directed at the, um, at the microorganisms um, that themselves without um, Without, without any particular focus on that sort of milieu, the, the, the environment around them per, per se. Um, and, and that distinction is, is, is important because um, a, a lot of our, well, a lot of our early work in this, as we're going to um, talk about more, I'm sure, a lot of early focus in the field is about composition of the gut microbiota. So there's been a much more of a, a recent shift to the importance of the, um, of the function of the gut microbiota. And so that, that, that concept of the environment, the milieu in which these microorganisms organisms live being sort of pushed much more to the fore. That's, that's a really helpful distinction, Ben. Thank you. Um, so there's evidently been an explosion in scientific research in this area, which has almost become a subspecialty in and of itself um, in the field of gastroenterology. Could you give us a potted history of the key landmarks in our understanding of the gut microbiome? and the technological innovations that have enabled these developments to occur. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most listeners will have some familiarity even back from when most of us were medical school, that you, you know, that even conventional microbiology, culture-based techniques has, has established that as well as there being, you know, bacteria in the gut that can potentially cause disease, that there were this concept of billions or trillions of bacteria in the gut that... Um, that also were, um, were there in all of us in health and disease states. Uh, but until very recently, we didn't really have any great handle on what they did. And because culture techniques can sometimes be difficult and cumbersome and require you know, strict anaerobic conditions to really culture up particular bacteria, then, then, then I think our, our understanding of this was somewhat, somewhat limited. But I suppose with the arrival uh, around 20 years ago of the Human Genome Project and the great advancements precipitated by that with genetic sequencing technologies, I think that was, that was one of the sort of key launch pads for, for, for people starting to apply those and similar technologies to, um, 
towards looking at um, the bacteria and other microorganisms of mucosal surfaces. And it's really been the um, moving on from a human genome project to, to looking at microbiome projects. There's now particularly they're from the US and to a certain extent from the, um, the UK as well. There have now been these huge um, microbiome sequencing projects applying next generation, very high throughput sequencing techniques to actually look at the microbial communities in the guts and to, um, to find those in ever greater granularity of detail. And it's been those that, are, um, uh, that have really led to this great explosion of knowledge because that hasn't relied on being able to have good anaerobic culturing techniques or anything like that. It just means you can take DNA from samples, be those stool samples, mucosal biopsies, um, other samples, and, and very quickly get a huge amount of, of, of sequencing information to allow you to, um, to find out all the um, microorganisms and, in, 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 and sometimes their genes in, within a community. So you mentioned there about huge amounts of information and clearly one of the technological advances that's been required to develop this field is the improvement in computer processing power uh, to generate these massive data sets which can then be um, analysed. With, with that, you do allude in your paper to some of the nomenclature around big data in this field um, and it would be very helpful if you could explain for us what some of these different terms mean, uh, particularly when we're talking about metataxonomics versus metagenomics, metatranscriptomics, metabenomics. What do yeah. each of these terms mean? And, and can you explain what the relative merits and perhaps drawbacks are of these different uh, techniques and big data approaches to a problem? Yes, of course. And I think I just prelude that by saying I think it's probably going to become more and more relevant to clinicians. I think probably many of us have had experience of, of patients either asking about this or bringing in readouts with, with these sort of huge data sets or, or, or elaborately coloured sheets showing I'm in a normal range or abnormal range with, you know, with, with long lists of bacteria or, or, um, or, or chemicals and, and asking what it means. And, and, and so I think having some framework for, for understanding that is very important. Um, in terms of the sort of simplest form, if, if that's not a contradiction of next generation sequencing, um, exactly as you say, we talk about metataxonomics or 16S sequencing. And this relies on the principle that, um, that prokaryotics, you know, including bacteria, have this, have this 16S rRNA genes. They have this sort of conserved gene. But within this gene, they have so-called hypervariable regions, which you know, could be thought of as a sort of uh, a fingerprint. In other words, that different bacteria, different microorganisms, or at least different bacterial groups we have this, um, these very variable regions of this, of, the, of this gene that's present in all their genomes. And um, by, by sequencing those, um, those regions and by, and by referring back to, um, to, to enormous databases of different bacteria, we can identify from samples what the bacteria are or at least which sort of family or which sort of taxonomic level that these bacteria come from. In contrast to that, the, the, the advantage as opposed to that is that's a, a pretty cheap, high throughput set technique, but it doesn't give us a, 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 the levels of details of some other techniques. Um, it might allow us to say what's the broad group of family of which the bacteria is from, but not allow us to say specifically what this a specific bacterium is. In contrast to that, a, a, another prominent technique is what's called shotgun meta, uh, metagenomics, whereby the entire, the entire genome of uh, of all the microorganisms in a sample is sequenced in its entirety. So that gives us um, a really great level of detail. We know which specific bacteria and other microorganisms are there. We even know which genes they have and we can estimate what amount they are. Uh, which, so it gives us a very huge amount of, 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 of very um, 
a very detailed information about um, bacteria and other microorganisms in the sample. The problem with that is it's computationally very complex. Uh, some of the uh, reference databases are, are incomplete in certain places. It's a more expensive technique. Uh, and so there's pros and cons to that. What, what you also mentioned, James, was some of these sort of more emerging um, systems biology te techniques, some of which we've sort of referenced in the paper. And, 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 and just to sort of give a, a flavour of those, um, what we're interested in, what, what lots of people have seen in clinic is this metabolomics or metabolomics, which is metabolite profiling of, um, of, 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 of samples, and particularly the um, you know, of gut microbial metabolites. So while sequencing gives us an idea of what's there and you know what what bacteria in a sample they they might don't necessarily give us a complete understanding of what they're doing and so being able to look at the metabolites they produce and what quantities gives us um gives us a bit more insight in that regard another technique we mentioned in the paper is something called metatranscriptomics so in other words looking at sequencing of the microbial rna from samples which gives us an idea of how what um of active versus inactive genes what genes are actually being transcribed and so which genes are the bacteria actually using not just you know which genes they contain in their genome but which genes they're actually turning on or turning off in a in a particular circumstance yeah thanks ben that's that's very helpful and i think it brings me on to an area which i'd really appreciate your thoughts on which is perhaps a bit more philosophical and it's this idea of um the big data approach to science and uh, solving problems from what could be described as maybe a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach. Yeah. Um, there are some school of thoughts that there is a lot of data created and it takes a long time for that to translate to a solution to a particular clinical problem. And perhaps part of the issue with that is some of the missteps that we've taken in our either our use of the data or the, the, the methods we use. Before we move on to some of the positive solutions that, and progress that has been made, could you perhaps talk about some of the missteps that have been made, perhaps in our nomenclature or how we um, apply big data and some of our methodological design in, in studies? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, I think when a lot of these techniques were first applied, they, they were used principally in, in cross-sectional studies, whereby... Uh, which was an obvious way to, to, to start, whereby we said, look, we think the microbiome is relevant to IBD or chronic liver disease or metabolic syndrome. And we took people who were healthy controls and we took people with the condition and we, 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 looked at their, we looked at their microbiome, we looked at some of these other systems biology techniques and we said that they are, they are different. Um, uh, and so therefore that there must be, they must be, in, and a lot, of the, a lot of the interpretation was they must be, that must mean the microbiota must be implicated in the um, in the condition because they're different between healthy controls and and people with a particular condition. But it, but it doesn't, of course, uh, as ever with science, it's, it's never quite that simple because what you of course there's lots of factors that influence the microbiome. And so if you just see a difference between healthy people and people with a condition, is it, does that mean the changes in the microbiome are caused? Does it mean they're consequence? Are they just a reflection of a difference in diet between groups? We know that is a very big influence on the microbiome is that difference in the drugs people have been taken so 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 i think i think one of the key difficulties has been that there's been this um uh, perhaps some over interpretation of, of, of cross-sectional data but 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 recognizing that um uh I, I think there's been some more sophisticated either more sophisticated cross-sectional design where you don't just compare healthy people and sick people but you might look at people with a condition but across the whole spectrum of the condition 
but I think even more usefully is is something with a with a more temporal aspect. In other words, you follow people up at risk from before they get a condition to the time they get a condition and see if their microbiome or their metabolome changes, or that um or, or that someone with a condition how that changes over time. And I think that gives us some 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 further insights um to to work off. And of course, with all these sort of experiments where we're looking at humans, they then obviously need some sort of validation in, in, in some sort of setting, be that, you know, a mouse model or an in vitro model. And of course, lots of those sort of models are, um, are, are fraught with their own difficulties and, uh, and problems with interpretation as well. So, 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 so the, the water's really muddy quite quickly. Yes, I mean, some of the points you made there just highlight just how difficult it is to do this research, both in terms of sample collection, big data analysis, um, but designing the patient populations as well. That, that, um... Yeah, I mean, one thing that springs to mind, James, is, of course, you know, uh, regular listeners of the, of the podcast and readers of your work might be familiar with, with, with work that you've, you, you've been, you know, implementing in, in microbiome and NAFLD. And, of course, NAFLD is, is in itself as, you know, you know, a difficult condition to research. And I, you know, how do you look at the microbiome in NAFLD with teasing apart the contribution of diabetes or or dyslipidemia or other features of the uh, of the metabolic syndrome? And 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 um, you know, perhaps you have some reflections on that yourself. But it's 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 a you know, it's it's a key challenge to actually attribute the changes you might see between groups to the condition of interest and not and not confounders. Well, is that your experience as well? Would you say? Yeah, and I, and I think we, you know, the, the more you investigate a complex biological system, you realise how complex it is. And uh, this will perhaps emerge when we discuss about therapeutics. But you know, there are many, many, many different factors all um, interplaying with each other, and to control for those between subjects. Um, and one of the things um, I'm not sure if you alluded to um, in terms of you know experimental design is is controlling for diet lifestyle geographical location all of these things which also impact the microbiota and have an effect on the results as well as the different disease states so it can be very challenging but i think it, it's fair to say and it'd be good to move on now to some of the positive developments because we, we despite all these challenges clearly the field has evolved appropriately and some important mechanistic and even therapeutic breakthroughs are beginning to emerge now um, so, so could you talk us through some of those, Ben, and what we've learned perhaps about some of the key uh, gastroenterological diseases and how the microbiota is related to them? Yes, sure. I mean, I, I think that, uh, uh, you, you know, I know we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to fecal transplant a bit. I think C. difficile infection, Clostridioides difficile infection has been, has been a sort of very good launch pad for this because it because you know our understanding is that this is an ecological disease in other words that you know we all know that broad spectrum antibiotics are a, a very big risk factor for this and and uh uh and that you know loss of commensal bacteria are, uh, are are a clear contributory factor so i think honing some of the techniques that uh you know of, of the analyzing the microbiome in the in the in the sort of forum of c diff has been it's been very helpful because it's allowed us to sort of iron out um some of those difficulties in, in, in experimental design interpretation because it's just it's just an easier model which to work with because the microbiome is just such a huge part of the disease. I, th I think I think the difficulty you know another difficulty but also you know an area of interest and an optimism as well is that the the microbiome has a more you know clearly a more nuanced or is just one of several factors that contribute to a number of more complex diseases. Um, but but I think nevertheless there has been some more 
mechanistic insights into into a number of different diseases. I suppose it kind of fits into a few broad categories. So I suppose inflammatory diseases would be a, a broad area of interest and particularly inflammatory bowel disease. And um, th we've moved on very much inflammatory bowel disease from cross-sectional studies to, to some more refined studies in the sort of manner I described before. I think we're starting to see, you know, there've been some inception cohorts set up. So very big uh, studies whereby huge number of people have had microbiome samples taken at a baseline followed for several years until they've got complications including IBD and, and those studies will sort of come through in due course and they've given a bit more insight into um, specific bacterial contributions to disease. Um, I suppose metabolic disorders are another sort of key area of interest including including metabolic syndrome and uh, and, and I think we've moved on from again some cross-sectional studies to, uh, to things that are a bit more um, uh, nuanced in um, in detail, um, and I think those are sort of some of the broad categories of um, of, of disease. That's helpful, Ben, and I, I think we'll come back to that actually. because I would like to move on to fecal transplantation, and I think that might, from that basis, might we might move on to some of these disease conditions and how it is fecal transplants being applied therapeutically to them. So let's just discuss um, fecal transplant, particularly in the UK setting. Um, you, you give some really helpful detail in the paper um, outlining some very practical information um, about the faecal micro uh, transplantation services and how they're organised in the UK. Could, could you summarise that for us and what's available to patients and how clinicians can, can go about referring patients with refractory C. diff to the service? Sure. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly as you say, I think, I think it's just worth reinforcing, first of all, exactly as you say, that where the, where the evidence base is strongest, as will be familiar to, 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 to most listeners for, um, for faecal transplant, is in re recurrent C. difficile infection. There, there, there is a bit of um, a small amount of uh, investigation or interest in primary C. difficile infection, but the, the, the evidence is not really convincing and far from overwhelming. The cohorts of interest are particularly people who've, who, who, who've failed previous courses of um, of, of vancomycin and, and, and often fadaxomycin as well. Um, and, and we've in this country, we started with very sort of basic services kind of back about 2012, 13. And they, often these services were, were one, per, you know, one person with a blender in their own hospital. <laughs> it was as primitive as that, but there, have, there has been a, a degree of refinement since that period with, with, with moving on. And one of the things that's helped that is the, is the recognition that FMT could be prepared in advance and frozen down to sort of enable this more sort of stool bank setting to be um to be to be set up where you can screen your donors in advance you can prepare the fmt in advance um knowing it's all right and and, and just store it on the day and, and get it out as we mentioned in the papers the biggest service in the uk is is the uh, microbiome treatment center in um in um uh, university of birmingham and, and and queen elizabeth hospital who have, have set up at, as it stands at the moment is a is a, is a nationwide stool bank who are able to provide on an nhs tariff FMT free of charge. It's sort of sent over overnight or on the day with a courier, and and can tailor it depending on whether you you favour upper GI or lower GI administration um, uh, at, at your particular site. Recognising that you know a single point of failure is a uh, is a risk for the sort of UK infrastructure. Um, we we have other centres tossed around. We run a centre at Imperial as well. Uh, St Thomas's uh, Hospital in London also run a centre, and there are some other uh, services dotted about throughout the um out the UK. So in Birmingham, they send out the faecal transplant to the patient. Is that how it works? That's right. They use the same couriers that we use to uh, 
transport blood for blood transfusion or have been also uh, retasked with um, uh, taking FMT to different sites as well. And then there's an agreed protocol with that spoke site as how they're going to administer that with appropriate sort of training and everything. Exactly, yeah. And Microbiome Treatment Centre have got a website and Twitter and email address and they're, they're very responsive. But similarly, I, I hope that uh, other um, uh, other sites, um, uh, uh, that people from other sites are very responsive as well. Of course, you know, no talk in this era can be complete without sort of, you know, the obligatory mention of how COVID has interrupted the process. Uh, and lots of centres have been on on pause for some time, ourselves included, as we, you know, both resource allocation to sort of deal with the pandemic and secondly, some uncertainty about how we would cope with screening donors, safety of administering to recipients, etc. There have been a number of sort of uh, discussion between people interested in this field internationally and we've, we, we've, we've come up with, you know, uh, agreed protocols for, for, for screening donors for COVID, including nasal swabs um, Birmingham again have been leading the way in terms of stool swabs for COVID as well um, and, and a lot of those initial concerns have now been ironed out and centres are starting to reopen uh, I know Birmingham are, are, are back up and running again we, we're certainly almost on the point of getting back and running again and, and so I, I would hope fingers crossed that uh, people will feel there's a bit more of a state of normality quite quickly. So if someone listening has a patient with refractory C. diff and it might be the first patient they've had like this under their care how do they go about um, investigating uh, whether faecal transplantation is for them? I think any of us, either at St. Thomas's, Imperial, Birmingham, I think any of us would be happy to discuss cases any time. I mean, I think uh, certainly our approach is that we have a sort of virtual MDT that we convene very quickly for cases where we um, where, where, where we're uh, you know, we're approached by people either in our trust or elsewhere about um, uh, about FMT. Uh, and we sort of group of interested parties from gastroenterology, um, infectious disease, microbiology, to sort of make a decision, to rubber stamp whether we think it's appropriate, and then um, and, and then come up with a plan to provide FMT from from there. As I say, I mean I think Birmingham have been leading the way and have got this sort of NHS tariff that's that's agreed and have the most sophisticated and extensive setup, and they are they are very easy to approach by getting directly in contact with them. I think we've got the um, email address in the paper, or it's easy to find. Um, um, online or via social media and they are they are particularly responsive at the moment being um being a sort of well established and, and having the facilities experience and infrastructure that they do and it's certainly worth getting in touch isn't it because i can't remember what the number needed to treat is but it's incredibly low for c diff and, and these patients who are otherwise struggling potentially for months on failed calls to antibiotics could really have a dramatic turnaround with with a faecal transplant yeah it, it, it's Exactly. I mean, we recognise that the sort of typical patient cohort are are elderly and frail, and that we, we you know, we we, we recognise that, that that often C diff is often one part of a, you know, not unusually a very complex admission to hospital, you know, quite reasonably. But but often we've had patients transform, you know, really quickly after really prolonged courses of hospital admission, recurrent hospital admission, associated impact upon. Uh, nutrition, fluid and electrolyte balance, quality of life, and, and have really responded very quickly to that. And, and that's either been able to get people to their own their own home or even to, um, you know, a care facility where previously they wouldn't be um, eligible for care because of, um, because, you know, because of having recurrent C. diff. So, um, so, so, so to be able to make that sort of um, uh, dramatic impact is, 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 is pretty remarkable, yeah. I'd like to finish, Ben, by... Um looking at the future directions of faecal transplantation and perhaps alluding to our earlier discussion on some of the breakthroughs in other 
disease conditions with our knowledge of the microbiome. Mm. Could you just outline where we're going with fecal transplant, particularly in the main disease areas of inflammatory bowel disease, advanced liver disease? Um, yeah, perhaps that, that those two. Yeah, exactly as you say, that following on from the recognition that there's a, a, you know, a perturbation of the gut microbiome associated with C. diff and FMT work so well, you know, by extension, the interest has been if other conditions like IBD or, or chronic liver disease uh, are also associated with a perturbed microbiome, can we, can, will they have equal success by restoring them, uh, by, by FMT to restore the gut microbiome in these conditions? Um, just, just, just to say broadly, before we get on to those sort of specific topics, that you, you know, I think we all recognise that FMT in itself is still pretty crude. You know, using frozen, thawed, frozen slurries, etc. And that there's certainly a, uh, you know, a drive to refine to, to new generation products. Certainly in the C diff field, there's been some phase two data and some phase three data from different U.S. biotherapeutics companies this year of a, of a, of a so-called next generation FMT product, which are a group of um, commensal bacteria that have been that have been put into a, uh, a capsulized uh, oral capsulized formulation that have, have reached their predefined primary endpoints of um, improvements of C. difficile and so I think I think you know that's that's really you know ignites a lot of interest and can we very quickly move on from FMT to something you know like a defined microbial therapeutic not only help C. diff but might help other conditions um, just just a brief comment on that i mean a lot of these trials have been done in, in in north america they haven't been licensed yet we don't know what how expensive these products will be we don't know how widespread they're going to be available but they're certainly obviously you know pretty, pretty an area of great interest um in terms of ibd there have been sort of four randomized trials uh published at present that have, have, have had different endpoints included different patients but collectively have shown a signal for um for fmt looking encouraging for um induction of remission from um from FMT, uh, a better ability to induce remission compared to um, uh, placebo. Uh, I, I think other people would say that it looks comparable to other conventional agents, and that given FMT obviously has the sort of you know known unknowns of um, you know potential complications, potential transmission of infection, etc., that, um, uh, that 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 actually those in themselves will not be compelling to to make FMT frontline therapy, but they're certainly an interesting signal that, 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 that further studies in FMT and IBD are, um, are needed. Uh, it's a lot of interest, obviously, given that antibiotics are so effective for, um, for pouchitis as well. There's been interest in FMT. They've studies in the um, fields of um, FMT and pouchitis, some of which have been performed in, in the UK by Elsa Hart and colleagues at St. Mark's, some of which have been performed internationally, have overall been disappointing today, including a new, um, a new study just published in the past couple of months. So that's really the field for... Um, for IBD. In terms of chronic liver disease, it's been interesting in um, hepatic encephalopathy with some positive, lots of positive signals coming out from, um, from studies either with enema FMT or capsulized FMT from, um, from Jasper George and colleagues in the, um, in the US, which has been an area of interest. Uh, in terms of NAFLD, there's been two pilot studies published from um, uh, one from the Netherlands, one from, the, um, one from Canada, which show an improvement in gut barrier function after FMT. Uh, but but I haven't shown any improvement in um in real sustained improvement in clinical parameters, and in terms of cirrhosis and chronic liver disease has been a um a much awaited study from um from the UK the profit study performed by Debbie Shawcross and colleagues at um at King's College uh, Liver Unit, which was randomising people to uh, uh, either upper GI FMT or uh, or match placebo, uh, looking at a variety of um scientific and clinical outcomes which has reported some some promising data in abstract form but the um 
but the uh, the full data on that is is awaited in due course. Uh, I think that's been the main um, the main developments in both of those fields. Yeah, that's an incredibly helpful summary, Ben. Thank you. And actually, that probably has to draw our conversation to a close, and that's about all we've got time for today. But Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for summarising your paper um, and the key areas of this very important uh, and emerging field. Thank you. Um, For those of you who are are listening, do download and read the paper. It's freely available as the editor's choice in the March 2021 edition. Um, And of course, as always, if you've enjoyed the episode today, do rate and review us to help other people find the show. Uh, But until then, Ben, thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks, James. Bye.